Welcome to the Living Faith Fellowship Conference podcast. The Living Faith Fellowship is a peer network of like-minded churches united under a single biblical authority and one common mission. You're about to hear a message from one of the many conferences hosted by the Living Faith Fellowship every year. We pray it's a blessing. Uh, now, I have the unenviable task of, of kicking things off uh, this morning. And the, the fact is, you're going to hear some, some pretty tremendous preaching and teaching this week. And Kenny and Alan and Steve. And so, you know, I'd be lying to you. Uh, if I told you that I wasn't just a little bit intimidated. But I, but I do trust that God has something for us even this morning. I, I trust that he is, wants to teach us something today on this topic of worship. And, and I'll be honest, it, it took me a while to land on the topic for the Certainty Conference this year where God really had us. I struggled with it. But I have no doubt that we will be getting what God wants us to get this week and what God wants us to hear. Because as we've been talking about over these past few weeks, as we've been talking about mission, mission and vision, our job is to bring God glory. And we do that as we worship him. We can't overemphasize true worship of God. I mean, how, how is that even possible to overemphasize that? In fact, we need to learn more and more about it, which is exactly what this week's about. And I... And I say that understanding, you know, what a huge topic it is that, that we're trying to tackle. You know, the word itself, worship or a form of the word, is found nearly 200 times in the Bible. That doesn't even count the, the numerous acts of worship found in Scripture where the word is not specifically used. And the truth is, I think I can speak for um, Kenny and Alan and Steve, is that none of us have the time nor the ability to exhaust the topic of worship. But that doesn't mean we should avoid it. And we're not going to avoid it. No, there's not a more important topic for us right here, right now. And I think what God is going to give us this week will be invaluable for, for where I trust he's going to take us from here. So in the time we have together this morning, I, I want to attempt to lay a foundation on this you know, overwhelming topic. And I want to lay a foundation by giving you the definition of a true worshiper. And I believe this will ready us for all that, that we're going to learn this week. Because there's a, there's a whole lot, obviously, that goes into worship and what it is and how to do it. You're going to hear all about that. It's a very deep subject. You know, obviously, we talk a lot around here. Worship is not just singing. It's not simply singing. It's obviously a part of worship, but it's not the totality of worship. But before you can grasp the full meaning of worship and how it is to be displayed in your life, you need to know how you are to be as a worshiper. And so this is where we need to start. You see, we know this from Scripture. We know that having true worshipers is something that God seeks. In John chapter 4, verse 23, when talking to the woman at the well, Jesus told her, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. He's seeking those true worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. And of course, the implication of this verse is that if there are true worshipers, then there must also be false worshipers. And let me just tell you, Laodicea is filled with them. Filled 
with false worshipers. And if we are going to be the church that God wants us to be, we can't be false worshipers. But here's the problem I, I believe we face, or at least one of the problems that we face. I, I believe there are many false worshipers in the church today who don't even know it. They don't even know that they're a false worshiper. Because they don't know what the Bible says about what true worship really is. And so what happens is they make it up themselves. And they live out their Christian life by their own rules, resulting in worship that is neither prescribed nor desired by the very God that they say they are worshiping. Shame, shame. But I love you enough to tell you the truth. So I'm going to define for you what a true worshiper is this morning. If you didn't know before, I pray that you know after today. And I'm going to do it from one of the most popular passages in the New Testament. It's two short verses from Paul in the 12th chapter of the book of Romans, verses 1 and 2. So if you have your Bibles with you and you're not already there, I invite you to turn there with me, Romans chapter 12. Many of you in this room are, are quite familiar with these verses. Many of you in this room have these verses memorized. But I'm afraid that in our familiarity, we sometimes miss the beauty and the depth of all that God is trying to say to us. And at least in my estimation, when talking about worship, there is no better New Testament passage to start with than Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So let's read them together, and then we're going to go to the Lord in a word of, word of prayer. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the Bible says you can follow along with me. If you've got it memorized, you can follow along with me in your mind. Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, I'm so thankful for today. I'm so thankful that the Certainty Conference is finally here. It's such a, it is such an important week on our calendar and what you do through this church and in this church. I'm so thankful for the people that took their time and energy and money and uh, just to come and be with us from out of town. And um, That means a lot to me. That means a lot to our church. It's an important thing for our church. And so I'm thankful for that. Pray for those that will be coming in later today and tomorrow that you'll give them traveling mercies and safety and, uh, in their travel. And, and Lord, I pray, that, I pray that you work in each and every one of our hearts this week. Lord, I pray that, that you use this week as a milestone in our individual lives and, and in our corporate lives together. And, and Lord, that this would be a week that we could point back to and, and say that you really moved and you really, really worked in us and, and through us. And, and so, Lord, I pray that for that even this morning, Lord, I pray that everything that is said is true to your word. I pray that it is honoring and is glorifying to you. And I pray that, that your Holy Spirit does what only he can do and to teach us, to convict us, convince us of our need to worship you with our lives. And so, Lord, be with us today. We love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we'll get to the details and the points here in a second, but, but the central theme in these two verses is the phrase living sacrifice. It's the central theme in this verse. It's a very 
very important phrase. 1 Peter 2.5 tells us that as New Testament believers, we are spiritual priests who are to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. Peter said, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And what we learn from Paul here in Romans chapter 12 is that the primary sacrifice we are to offer, that we're called to offer, is ourselves. So with the new covenant we have in Christ, the sacrificial system of worship isn't abolished. It's just changed from what it was in the Old Testament. And we don't offer dead animals anymore. We are to offer live selves So what I need you to understand is that God still commands worship through sacrifice in the exact same way that he did in the Old Testament. That's what we see in the very first mention of worship in the Bible back in Genesis chapter 22, even before the law, by the way. And and, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later on this morning. But in the context, a very popular passage, the context of Abraham obeying God by offering his son Isaac as a sacrifice, Genesis 22, 5 says, And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. You see, Abraham describes what what he intended to be, what he thought would be his sacrificial offering of Isaac as an act of worship. And this gets to the, maybe the unpleasant depth or the inconvenient truth of worship. You know, I, I sometimes, in my flesh and in my carnality, wish that I could worship God fully by only singing to him, not having to give him my life. But that's not the biblical prescription. True, true worshipers do more than sing. Listen, that's why Paul starts out Romans 12, 1 the way he does, by begging the brethren there in Rome to hear him and to apply what he's teaching them. He said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, I beg you, I plead with all my Christian brothers and sisters. And he's begging them, and by extension, the Holy Spirit is begging us today Because the average Christian, especially in the Odyssey, does not worship God this way, sacrificially. And therefore, by definition, Christians are false worshipers. And Paul didn't want that for the Romans, and I don't want that for you. So after begging them to listen, Paul masterfully defines a true worshiper for them and for us. And here's where it starts. This is our first point. A true worshiper uses the right motivation in worship. A true worshiper uses the right motivation in worship. Look at the beginning of verse 1 again, and let me show you the motivation of a true worshiper. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. You see, it is the mercies of God that should motivate us to worship God. That is the right motivation. It is the most pure, the most unselfish. And we learn some insight into what those mercies are by Paul's use of the word, therefore. That word is the bridge that connects Romans chapter 12, really Romans 12 through 16, with the first 11 chapters of Romans, or or even more specifically, Romans 1 through 8. 
So Paul breaks down Romans like he does most of his books. He's starting with the doctrine, ending with the duty. So based on the doctrine I've just taught you, here's what you should do with it. Here's how you should live. So Romans 1 through 8 is chock full of doctrine. And so is 9 through 11, but that's that parenthetical where, where Paul's dealing with Israel's past, present, and future in those, in those chapters. And then starting in chapter 12, he gets to the more practical. But in all of Paul's writings, the practical applications that the duty is always based off the doctrine. Or what is called in Romans 12.1, the mercies of God. That's exactly what they are. I'm going to show it to you. And we don't have time to go through all the beauty of the book of Romans this morning. But let me read just a few of those mercies. And I just want you to listen to them. I, they'll, of course, be up on our screen, but I want you to listen to them. I want you to soak in the mercies of God. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, unto everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 3, verses 21 through 26, but it says, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto us all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Romans 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore be justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith unto this grace wherein we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Romans 5a says, But he commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6, verses 5 through 7 says, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead... Is freed from sin. Romans 8.1. What an incredible verse. It says there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Romans 8.11. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Jesus from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Romans 8.15. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, We've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Oh, what mercies we have from God. And I barely scratched the surface of all that are found in the book of Romans. And these mercies are the doctrines of the Scripture. 
We just read about the doctrines of salvation and resurrection and justification and glorification and adoption, just to name a few. And those doctrines are to be the source of motivation in your worship. Because the more you understand about God, the more you understand all that God has done, or let me just say it this way, the more you understand about the Bible, the more in awe of God you should be. And the more of awe of God, in awe of God you are, the more that giving your life as a living sacrifice just makes sense. And it becomes a no-brainer. Because the more in awe of God you are, the less in awe of yourself you will be. And you will see yourself for who you really are. So your worship will be right because, listen, false worshipers don't have this motivation. Their motivation is self-centered. Maybe they worship for rewards. And listen, God is great. He is good enough to give us rewards for our service. But should that be the motivation? Some false worshipers worship for glory, for a position, to be noticed, whatever it might be. But true worshipers worship because they understand the mercies of God, which means they understand the Bible and the key doctrines of the Bible. Listen, mercy and mercies of God are consistently connected to the Bible. They are consistently connected in God's word to God's word. So let me show you. We know from John, 7, John 17, 17 that God's word is truth, right? He says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth, all right? We're all clear on that. Now, the very first mention of the word mercies, plural, in the Bible is found in Genesis 32.10. Jacob is praying to God, and listen to what he says. We'll start in verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which said unto me, Return unto thy country and thy kindred, I will deal well with thee. Look at verse 10. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. They're connected. With my staff I have passed over a journey, and now I am become two bands. He showed him all his mercies and all his truth. Because where do we find God's mercies? The mercies are the key doctrines in the Bible in his word. Psalm 85.10, look, look at what it says. It says mercy and what? Truth. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. So listen, I, and I can prove this to you over and over, but we don't have time. I just want to show you these verses. But you receive God's mercies as you spend time in his book. And how often should you do that? Well, Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 23 says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed, because his compassions fail not. For they, those mercies, are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. If those mercies are new every morning, maybe you should spend time in God's word every morning. You know, but who am I? What do I know? But as you spend time in this book every day and you learn those doctrines and truly begin to come to a realization, understanding what God did for you, and you receive those daily mercies to make it through the day, should motivate you to worship him. What's the only other response you can give him? The motivation will be right. It will be pure. It will be God-centered and not self-centered. 
and it will naturally overflow in your life. You even see that in Paul in his writings, and we can show you multiple places, but, but let me just show you in Romans where we're at. After everything he writes about, all those doctrines in, in 1 through 8, 9 through 11, look at how he ends that section. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And let's skip down to verse 36. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. And then, therefore, <laughs> give your life as a living sacrifice. What else? How else do you give him glory? How do we worship him? By being a living sacrifice. And again, that's a tall order. So unless you have the right motivation, let me just be honest, you're very unlikely to do it. But even when you are properly motivated, you need to know how, what it is that you use. And that brings us to our second element of a true worshiper. That is a, tri a true worshiper uses the right mechanism in worship. So this point won't take very long, but let me show you what I mean by that. Let's just continue on. All, all we're doing is looking at the words, the perfect words of God. We're just walking through these verses. I beseech, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Okay, so there is something we are to present to God in our worship, and that is our bodies. Our bodies are the mechanism through which we are to worship. So listen to me very carefully and hear what I'm saying. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Because what this means is that true worshipers, like I've already stated, don't only worship through singing or don't only worship through their prayers even. Can you worship God through prayer? Of course. It's part but not all. It also means that true worshipers don't only worship through their pocketbook. Can you worship God through giving? Of course. It's part of it. It's just not all. You see, the truth is, God wants all of us. That's what the word body encompasses, everything. It doesn't say flesh. It's not our flesh. It's our bodies. And why is this? It's because as Christians, we belong to him. Every part of us belongs to him. You've been redeemed by the blood. If you've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb, then you've been purchased by him. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, popular verses. What, know you not your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, for you're not your own. For you're bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Our body, as our individual bodies, as Christians, hosts the Holy Spirit. So our body, what that means, is now able to glorify God because his spirit is now in our spirit. See, that's not possible before you get saved. We only used our bodies for sinful pleasures and purposes according to Romans 6.6 6 and Ephesians 2.2. But now it is our privilege to be able to glorify him in our body, in our actions, in our movements, through how we talk, all of it. Philippians 1.20 says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified where? In my body, whether it be by life or by death, either way, as a living sacrifice or a dying sacrifice. And listen, 
this should not surprise us. Because what is it that God used to redeem us? A body. The body and the blood of Jesus. God could have sent salvation any way he wanted, I suppose. He's God. For example, I suppose he could have prayed it into existence. Suppose he could have paid, our salva- paid for our salvation with physical money. But he didn't. Jesus Christ took on himself a human body in order to accomplish God's will on earth. Luke twenty two nineteen, 19, and he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. So in like fashion, we too are to present or yield our bodies to Christ in order to fulfill his will in our life. Romans 6.13 says, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. And our members gets to all parts of our body. So our mind, our lips, our tongue, our hands, our arms, our feet, they all play a part. They all are to play a part in worship. They're all to be used in worship. That's the mechanism, our bodies. And then next, Paul tells us what to do with our bodies. This is the third aspect of a true worshiper. A true worshiper uses the right manner in worship, or worships the right way, and that is, as we've been talking about, as a living sacrifice. So look at the rest of Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. We've already talked about this. This is the central theme of these verses. Like I said, you can't sing your way into true worship. You can't pay your way into true worship. And and again, hear what I'm saying. Those are all part of worship. But ultimately, true worship isn't only about making or giving. It's about being. Until you sacrifice and surrender... As modeled in Genesis 22, you haven't fully worshipped. Okay, so we read Genesis 22.5 earlier. And obviously that very popular passage, it gets talked about a lot in the, in, in the context or in conjunction with worship because it's the first mention. And it makes the connection with, of worship to sacrifice. That's how we got to Romans 12 as a model of a true worshiper. That connection with sacrifice, being a living Sacrifice, But the one thing I, I think usually missed in that verse, and that I didn't mention earlier, is that Isaac was worshiping too. Listen, listen to his words. A- Abraham said, I and the lad will go yonder and worship. So they were both worshiping. So Abraham was doing it through sacrifice. Isaac was doing it through surrender. And, and get this, he was surrendering as a living sacrifice. You see, the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, they were dead when they were placed on the altar. But not Isaac. Why? Because he was a picture of the other living sacrifice you find in the Bible. And that, of course, is Jesus. So when it comes to being a living sacrifice, the manner in which we are to worship, it involves both sacrifice and surrender. But let me sum that up in one word that I I believe encapsulates it all. It's just this simple. It's obedience. It's obedience. Because when it came down to it, 
Abraham didn't have to sacrifice Isaac, right? God provided himself a lamb. But Abraham was obedient to what his father was asking him to do. And that's how you make sense of verses like 1 Samuel 15, 22. This says, and Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in what? Obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, obey is, the better, is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fatter rams. Even in the Old Testament, it's, it's always been about the heart, because that's where obedience comes from. We know that from Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Listen, it's, a, it's, about, it's about being even more than doing because you can do the right thing without being the right person. But as long as you're being the right person, the result is going to be doing the right thing. And this was true of Isaac as well. In his surrender, he was being obedient to what his father was asking him to do. And if you and I, if we want to know what being a living sacrifice actually means. You can boil it down to th that simplicity. Being obedient to what our Heavenly Father is asking us to do. Being obedient to His will, not ours. That was Jesus in the garden, right? Prayed that this cup would pass. Matthew 26, 39. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine. And when we do that, when we're obedient and just give our life over to him as a living sacrifice and, and we'll surrender to what he has to say, then we will live holy and acceptable lives. A living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Right? Okay, let me show you. First Peter chapter 1, verses 14, 15 says, As obedient children... Not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. That being obedient children leads to holiness. As we obey what this book says, as we obey what God is telling us to do, the result will be holiness. And when we are obedient, we are acceptable or well-pleasing to God. Colossians 3.20 says, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. And while this verse is in direct reference to our physical children obeying us as parents, there's also a spiritual application for us as the children of God obeying our Heavenly Father. And, and parents, this isn't even what the message is about, but just hear me. This is why it is so important for you to make your children obey. Because you're if you don't make them obey you, you're teaching them it is optional to obey their heavenly Father. You're teaching them it is optional to obey what this book has to say. And they get to do it however they want. No, make them obey. It's that important. It's well-pleasing unto the Lord. Just as it is well-pleasing unto him when we obey him. It's acceptable unto him. And as Romans 12, 1 says, it's reasonable for us. He's not asking us to do too much. When he's asking us to be a living sacrifice, when he's asking us to obey his word, surrendering our will to his, it's not too much. It's reasonable. I mean, he did provide us salvation after all, didn't he? He's even good enough to reward our service. Is it then too much? 
for him to ask us to just obey him? To just surrender our will to him as a living sacrifice? I don't think so. We need to be like the psalmist of Psalm 116 verse 12 that says, What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? <laughs> the answer is your life. Render is a math word, Steve. What do you render? You, if you come in the morning sessions, that'll make sense to you. Nothing is unreasonable. But there's a way in which it's to be done. There's a manner of service we're to perform, laying down our life and our carnal desires and dreams, laying aside our will and obedience to his. And we're just to lay ourselves on the altar and say, God, I give it up. Everything I am, everything I have, everything I hope, it's yours. Do with me as you will. I will obey, I will go, I will do, I'll be. But you'll never get there if you can't get your eyes off this world and all the distractions of this world. And God knew that, Paul knew that, because that's where he goes in the next verse, which brings us to our fourth characteristic of a true worshiper, and that's a true worshiper uses the right mind in worship. And the right mind is a renewed mind by God's word. It's God's mind. Look at the first part of Romans 12 too. Again, we're just walking through these verses. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, the world wants to control your mind through conformity. But God wants to transform your mind. And the word used for transformed here in Romans 12, 2 is the same word translated as transfigure in Matthew chapter 17. Verses 1 and 2 of that chapter say, and after, and after six days, pay attention to that, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured, was transformed, was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as light. So it's a change from within that reflects God's glory. It's what happened to Jesus there. He was in a glorified body as king of kings, just as he will be after the sixth day is complete. And he's the king on the throne in the seventh day, or the day of the Lord. But that's a separate issue. What I want you to see is that the world cannot transform you from within. So it tries to exert pressure from the outside. You know, for our youth, we call it peer pressure. It tries to exert pressure from the outside to get you to conform to its spirit. There, there is absolutely, the world has a spirit, the spirit of this age. But the Holy Spirit changes your mind by releasing power from within to reflect God's glory in your life. That's the transformation process we all need. It's described in 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory even as the Spirit of the Lord. That's the process. It's as, we, as we look into that glass, His glory from the inside, from the Holy Spirit begins to reflect on the outside as we're changed to look more and more like Him. But this transformation process only happens as we spend time beholding ourselves in that glass that James defines as God's word. James 1, verses 22 through 24, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man, beholding his natural face in a glass. 
for he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. So we're to, it's a context of, of the word of God and a, a false worshiper will look and look at it in the glass and he'll look at this book and he'll see what's wrong and he'll close it and he'll walk out of the door and go live his life the same. Oh, this is to change us as we look in it because this is God's glory and we see his glory and see we're not very glorified in this flesh. And listen, we know that here. This church knows that the only way to a renewed mind is through this book. As you spend time in it, as you love it, as, it le- as you let it mold you into the image of the glorious one. Because looking like him is the goal. I mean, Christ is the only standard. I'm not your standard. None of you are my standard. Christ is the standard. So that means the right mind of a true worshiper is one that seeks conformity to Christ through this book. Because that's how you work on that goal. You analyze the looking glass, the mirror you find in God's word. Because the word is the standard. Christ, the capital W. And the small w, the word of God. So you allow the word of God to work as the only the way it can. To transform your life. And mold you into image until you look like him. You just keep after it. You get up every day and you go seek out those mercies. Seek out what it is that he's done for you. And you just do that your whole life. I mean, you know, we're going to get glorified bodies one day. You know, God's promise is that, Philippians 1 6, other verses. But, but it's our job to worship him through a continual renewing of our mind while we're down here. And let me just tell you, when you do that work and you're worshiping him by looking into that mirror every day and judging yourself according to this standard, according to Christ, you realize very quickly that you don't have room to slack off. You can't take too many days off and keep progressing that you still have a ways to go, so you need to stay focused. The race ain't over. So don't get distracted by this world that is trying to exert pressure every day to get you to conform to it. You're either going to be conformed to the world or you're going to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Choose. And if you choose this route and you still try to worship God, it's false. This is the route. You got to renew your minds. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus through this book. It's Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And if you look to him and you stay focused on him, and if you're doing that, then your life, we, in our bodies, can give God glory. How, How crazy is that? We don't have to wait till we get our glorified bodies to bring God glory. In these bodies, as crazy as these bodies are, we can give him glory. 
but you don't have time to look at the world and get caught up by its distractions and give him glory and be conformed to it. No, the answer is to keep your nose in this book. It's the source of true worship. It is truth. It's the knowledge of God's word, which is to say the knowledge of the mercies of God. So we're back to where we began, to know the truth, to believe the truth, to hold convictions about the truth, to love the truth, and it'll work in your life. It works like that is conviction followed by affection, saying with David in Psalm 119, verse 97, Oh, how I love thy law. Oh, how, oh, how I love, how love I thy law. <laughs> I got that messed up, sorry. But listen, oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. And how do you meditate? Where do you meditate? In your mind. You meditate in your mind, and as you do, your mind gets renewed as you decide to spend time time in that book, to love that book, to let those mercies soak into you, to understand all that God has done for you, to realize how woeful you are in front of him and all that he has, all that he has offered us. And, and then you let that soak in and you love his law and you meditate on those mercies. God changes you from within. And you can reflect his glory. And all of a sudden, before you know it, you're a true worshiper. But you can't be one without this. Don't lie to yourself. Don't be that, that, that guy in James, you know, that just lies to himself and beholds himself in a glass but never changes and walks out and doesn't do anything about it. Be honest. And listen, here's how you do it. you got to prove it. You do that by proving it. And that's our fifth quality of a true worshiper. A true worshiper uses the right measure in worship. So look at the end of Romans 12 too. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, your life is to be the proof that worship of the one true God is worth it. That God's will is the right will. His will is better than ours. And his will is good and acceptable, and even more than that, it's perfect. And when people size you up, and they measure your life, and they do the math on you, it points them to the Lord. And your numbers don't lie. Ephesians 5, verses 8 through 10 says, For we were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. We, as you walk in the light, you prove what's acceptable, that his will is right. Philippians 1, verses 9 and 10, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense to the day of Christ. And I've told you this before, but 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, right, tells us prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. And I've told you this before. But proving all things includes you. You're part of all things. That means you don't just take your own word for it that you're a true worshiper. 
You're not trustworthy enough. You lie to yourself all the time. And I know that because I do it. So prove it. And how do you prove it? You prove it by not conforming to this world, by renewing your mind in objective biblical truth. So you're not postmodern and create your own truth. Create your own way to worship. I want to worship God this way. I'm not, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, come to church on Sundays, but, uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out and I'm going to sit in, in the woods and I'm going to worship God, you know, as I, as I look at the leaves. I mean, show me. There's a prescription on how we, how we worship him. So don't be postmodern, because like, postmodernism, you get to create your own truth. No, you don't. Sorry. We have it here. This is it. Do what it says or don't. You get to choose. But don't, don't do it your own way and then claim to worship God too. Let God be true and every man a liar. When you do it, when you do it his way and you show the world what God has done and is still doing in you, you prove him to be true. Listen, there's no greater evidence that God is real than a changed life. As awesome as this earth is, all the beauty of the natural creation, we know Psalm 19, all of that. A changed life is better. It's better proof. And I've told you this before. This is why your testimony is the greatest witnessing tool you've got. So be that proof. And listen, be that proof down here as a living sacrifice here before men. Because everyone is going to find out one day. So do it now so that they don't find out later that you weren't. Because I want you to just think about the scenario. What is required for a sacrifice to occur? The answer is fire. Without fire, there is no sacrifice. And there is coming a day that we are going to prove whether we were a living sacrifice or not. Because we're going to be tried by fire. And that day is the day of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.13 says, Every man's work shall prove, shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try, the fire will prove what sort your work was. It's going to prove if you were a true worshiper or a false worshiper. And after that trial by fire, the proof will be in the proverbial pudding. And whether or not you lived your life as a living sacrifice, because verse 14 says, if any man's work shall abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Listen, there's going to be a day that we are all measured. And it will be obvious if you and I are true worshipers or false worshipers. And I may be able to fool you now, but I won't be fooling anyone on that day. I won't be fooling anyone after I've been put on that altar of sacrifice and tried by fire to see if I lived this life in this body as a living sacrifice. So sacrifice now, or sacrifice suffer loss then. 
It's your choice. But I say let's all be true worshipers today. I say we do it his way today. I say we don't allow the, the world to influence and pressure us to the point that we conform to it. I say we don't make up our own rules for how we get to worship God. So let's use the right motivation. Let's be in awe of God and all of his mercies, all the beautiful doctrines contained in this book, all that he did for us. It's amazing. It's incredible. How, what's the only natural response? Serve him as a no-brainer because what else is worth doing? We need to be like Peter. In John 6, 68, when Jesus asked his disciples if they were going to leave, like everybody else was leaving, right? Things were getting crazy. Everyone else is leaving. And he turns to his disciples and says, you guys going too? And Peter, then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? What else are we going to do? Nothing else is worth it. Let's be like Isaiah when he got a peek into the throne room. Kind of like we get when we open this book. A peek into the throne room. And he saw God's glory. And look at his response in Isaiah 6, 5. And said, I woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I will dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of the host. He was undone when he saw the glory of God. He, he just all he could say is, Woe unto me. But then look at how he responded. And the only response that's appropriate, down in verse 8, also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And said, I, here am I. Send me. It's the only response that's appropriate. Here am I. Send me. I'll live my life as a living sacrifice. What else could he do? When he saw all that he saw. But listen, we get to see the same thing. Through this book, we get to see the glory of the Lord. We get to read about the mercies of God. We get to see what is and what is to come. And we should know. What else can we say but, Lord, not my will, but thine. I'll lay my life down. Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? I'll do it. What else? What else can we do? How about you? When you, when you read those mercies, when you see what God has done, when you look at yourself in the objective truth of the mirror of God's word, what's your response? Is it to give your body? All of it, or is it the whole back parts of it for yourself and for this world? Oh, man, we're to give it all in the right manner, the right way, being obedient to what this book has to say, putting our will aside, putting it on the altar and living out his will. As you put on his mind, as you meditate on his word and you live it out in order to prove it, this book is true. 
Nobody believes it today, do you? Is it true in your life? Has it changed you? Has it made you a new creature? Then live like it. Prove it. When people measure you and they look at you, man, be the proof that God's who he said he is and that he loves like he said he loves. Be willing to do whatever it is. Meditate on his word and prove that God's will is perfect. It's perfect. That's true worship coming from a true worshiper. But listen, that only scratches the surface. That's why you need to come out this week. That's why you need to be here every night. And if you can and don't have to work, come in the mornings. There isn't a more important topic for us today. And there may not be a more important topic for us in all of Scripture. The more you know about worship, the better worshiper you will be. And that's what we are here to do, to give him glory by worshiping him for his glory. So let's do it the way he, he prescribes, and let's do it the way he deserves. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. And as you're settling your heart and mind, I just, I just want you to take the time and I want you to ask yourself, after hearing what you heard this morning, do you think you're a true worshiper or a false worshiper? And I just want you to ask that question of yourself honestly. And if you need to make some changes to be a true worshiper, why don't you do them this morning? Don't wait till the end of the conference. Don't wait till Wednesday night when we're wrapping things up. Get it right now so that God can take you to new heights over the next four days. So let's, let's put away the distractions of this world this week and, and, and let's focus on him, let's focus on his word, and let's focus on how to worship him. And listen, if there's anybody here, and if you don't know the Lord as your Savior, if you've, if you've never come to the point where you've placed your faith in him and, and you don't even know that his will is perfect, man, we would love to take the time to open up God's word and show you exactly what it means to be saved exactly how to place your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So if you have any questions about that, come talk to us. We'd love, we'd love to do that. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so thankful for your word. I'm so thankful for, for what this week brings. I'm so thankful for, for the people that are here and, 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 and what you're going to teach us this week. And, and Lord, I pray that um, you'll be glorified through all of it. I, I pray that, that we'll be changed because of it and that we'll be true worshipers, knowing how to worship you and living our life out that way. Lord, help us. Um, man, we, you know, we, we fall all the time and we stumble all the time, but help us to keep our eyes focused and fixed on you to worship you uh, the way you deserve. We love you. We're so grateful for you and all that you do, all the mercies that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.